We're going to be covering a lot of material in a short time. Now, you'll profit some from it if you just glean one thing and take it away, but you'll profit more from it if you really comprehend the basic things we're going to cover and study them later. When this was first shared with me, I spent a lot of study time for a year and a half or two years really digging into scriptures in the light of these truths, and God has really used them in my life to get through on a lot of things, the reasons why I react negatively in certain ways, how this can be overcome in a scriptural way. And it's been extremely helpful to me. I, uh, before I start, so that I don't forget later, but I do have, I don't want you to use this as a substitute for writing down what the Lord impresses you with, but I have notes on this message. It's not identical, but it's very similar to what I'm sharing this morning. That if you'll come up sometime, I don't have them along. I didn't get them put together and stapled yet. But if you'll come up, uh, I'll have them later and uh, be glad to give them to you. Also, I'm working on a study on this subject, and I have it uh, nine-tenths done, maybe. <laughs> and it's a rather hard study. But uh, if you would like to write to me later uh, or give me your name and address, I'd be glad to send it to you when it is finished. So why don't we bow in prayer? Father, we realize that having you, belonging to you, we have the greatest that life can offer. We are in touch with the source of all good things and the solution to all of our problems. And yet, you know each of our hearts here this morning. We are far from perfect. We are not finished products. We've got a lot of growing to do, a lot of learning to do. And we pray that this morning you will take your truth and speak to our individual hearts and give us keenness of perception that we will learn what's on your heart for us, that we will not just be momentarily moved in any way, but that uh, things will happen in our hearts that will lay the groundwork for a deeper work in you as the months go by. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our subject this morning might be called the curing power of love, or love can cure us. Or it could be called uh, just the three words, on being somebody. <laughs> they sound different, don't they? But they're really connected. Some of you probably not too long ago have heard the song going around, you're nobody till somebody loves you. Our young people like that idea. They're, they're on a quest in life to find out who they are. Are they all right as persons? Are they acceptable? And they've uh, seen, they have some insights that maybe some of us older ones have lacked. They see through the fact that you don't become somebody by having two cars in the garage or by having success in business. They see people who have lots of things and lots of success, and they still haven't got that something that would really make them somebody, really make them the kind of person that these people, young people want to be. And so they're on a quest to find out who they are, to become somebody through love. Their big danger is that they won't find a love that's big enough or long-lasting enough to meet their deepest needs. They're looking in the wrong place. 
Marilyn Monroe is said to have made the statement that her whole life was a quest for limitless love, and she never found it. Now, our need, whatever our age <laughs> this morning, is basically the same as those young people. We need the confidence and the inner sureness and the inner reinforcement and security that love can give. Or if we want to use modern terms, and this is sometimes important if we're going to communicate with people in our time, we need ego support. We need a sense of identity. We need an acceptable self-image. And there's nothing wrong with wanting ego support. <laughs> there's just something wrong with where we seek it. You and I are on a quest many times to find out who we are. And you know, basically, our quest isn't necessary. What we, uh, but let me backtrack a little bit. We cannot see who we are or be assured that we're all right as persons physically without a mirror, can we? Imagine trying this morning to fix yourself up without a mirror. And so uh, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, we need a mirror in which to see what we're like. And the only mirror that the person in the world has is the mirror of other people's responses. And in their responses, they get to feeling good about themselves or terrible. People smile and compliment and they feel great. They frown and they what's wrong with me? And their emotions go up and down according to the, what they see in the mirror of other people's responses. Now, you and I have come in contact, I trust each one of us, in real living contact with the one mirror that always reflects perfect love, and that's the mirror of God's love. When we, at that day that we were singing about, came to know him, to personally receive him into our hearts through trusting his death on the cross, then we came in contact with that wonderful love that made us feel all right as persons. And we can remember moments and days, maybe months, of life when, when we just felt all right about ourselves because we were so conscious of the perfect love of God toward us because we belonged to him. But so many times we revert to the old quest of trying to find our inner support in the responses of people. And we can tell it because of how often we get upset, how often we're disturbed inside. We're going to go into other symptoms later. It's been said that every problem either within our personalities or between us as people, has, can somehow be traced to a lack of true identity, a lack of inner sureness about who we are. And as I've studied, I've come to the conclusion that in my life that's pretty true. When I see something, a negative response, a reaction that I know is not scriptural, and I ask the Lord, Lord, what is the reason for it? It always goes back to the fact that I have reverted to the mirror of man's approval in some direct or indirect way, some immediate or long-term way, instead of finding my confidence as a person in the unchanging, perfect love of God. 
And if we're going to talk about what worldliness is, this is it. It's not a few do's or don'ts. Worldliness is this whole pattern. Where do I find my inner support? The world finds it on the visible level. The Christian is asked to find it on the invisible level in her relationship with God. Jeremiah 8.22 says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician then there? Why then is the hurt of my people not cured? Last isn't word perfect, but that's the idea of it. If we were to trace back our problems, you know, even the unobvious things, um, we find we try to find our identity in people's responses, and we fail, and we feel inadequate about ourselves. So we may go to the refrigerator and grab a lot of food. <laughs> you ever had that problem, eating more than you should? We're trying, is a love substitute, in a way, trying to meet the inner emotional needs when it's a compulsive thing. On another level, trying to substitute it. We failed on the human level to find our inner support, so now we're going to try to meet it in another way, on the visible level. All the lusts, I believe, can go back to this. The lust of the flesh, inordinate desires, the thoughts that we shouldn't entertain and cultivate, but we do. A desire to indulge on the human level to meet our emotional needs because we are trying to find them apart from, met apart from the love of God. There is a balm in Gilead. There is a physician. There is a cure. And scriptures have plainly pointed it out to us. But we need to take time to say, Lord, I am not satisfied with this reaction that constantly upsets my family living or my roommate situation. I am not satisfied with enlisting the things, saying, now, Lord, you show me the cure, and spending time in his word, both for him to examine our hearts and to express his love. There is a cure. But if we're going to, uh, this morning, we want to do several things. First of all, we want to go into a diagnosis of our spiritual illness. Then we want to uh, spend a little bit more time on the, the true cause behind our symptoms. And then we want to take a little time on the cure. I would personally love to just take the whole time on the cure. That's the wonderful, positive part. And I always have a struggle when I share this because I tell the Lord, Lord, couldn't I just spend time on the positive? I just love to talk just about the love of God. But the Lord always says, now, Ruth, you can't always do just the pleasant things. And so we'll go into the whole thing, the Lord willing, if we can get through in time. When a doctor diagnoses an illness, he often goes into the case history of the patient. And the case history of our spiritual illness, our worldliness, goes back a long, long way to the beginning of the human race. Because it all started with that first woman, Eve. Adam and Eve had been created... different from the animals... And one of those differences was the fact that they were conscious of who they were. They had conscious self-awareness. They could know who they were. The animals couldn't. And they were also created in the source. In, in They needed ego support. And they were created and they lived, we don't know for how long, but they lived in touch with the love of God. And in the mirror of God's love, they were. they never doubted 
that they were all right as persons. God made them feel important. He came down and communed with them. The very God of gods wanted their fellowship. Talk about inner support. And God loved them. And they were somebody. And it was never a problem to them. Until Eve listened to a lie. And one aspect of the lie that Satan told her was, Look, God is deceiving you. You could really be somebody if you just step out on your own, independently. Don't you want to be someone in your own, in yourself, on your own, independent of God? Just think how great it would be. You'd be like God. And he thought, that sounds good. So she disobeyed God. She disenthroned him. And too late she realized that instead of really becoming somebody, she had instead cut herself off from that constant sense of identity and being all right as a person that she had known. I'm sure she tried to regain it right away. First of all, from Adam. <laughs> and I'm sure many times his love made her feel good about herself. But you know what the problem was? He had needs too. He's probably sometimes occupied with trying to get her to make him feel good about himself. And I'm sure that friction <laughs> gradually developed. And then her little babies came along, and I'm sure though their warmth and the way they needed her and responded to her made her feel awfully good about herself. But as the dissension and finally even murder came into the family, I'm sure that her, she just felt as a failure. She couldn't find anywhere around her that which would co constantly make her feel all right as a person. And every one of us since then has been on the same quest. We're either trying to make the people around us love us the way we want to be loved, or else we're trying to grasp for some new love. If only that wonderful love would come into my life, then I'd be complete and all right as a person from forevermore. And on the human level, we're never going to find a love big enough to meet those vast inner needs. It's not long after we were born and we started on our quest to find out who we are. We started, first of all, from our parents to gain some impression of what we were like. And to the degree that they met our emotional needs, we felt all right as persons. But you know, we were very self-oriented. Even in our little subconscious minds, we related everything to how it reflected on us. I don't know if many of us are more mature now. <laughs> everything that happened reflected somehow on us. And they say that even parents quarreling will make a little child feel very inadequate as a person because they'll think, if I were a worthwhile person, they wouldn't do this to me. Well, we soon learned that there were several ways that we could earn approval. The basic ways that we found that we could learn our approval, approval from other people, was by appearance, how we looked, by performance, how we did. By status, how important we were. We could spend an hour discussing these three. The little girl learns that just by being a cute little blonde thing, she can get lots of smiles. And if her needs are not met on a deeper level, she may grow up with an inordinate desire to look good. She may spend hours and vast sums of money that she can't even really afford 
preoccupied with her physical appearance because she finds that her primary ego support comes from the approval she gets of her appearance. The rest of us, who aren't so well endowed, still try. And um, we find that we uh, cultivate some kind of an image that we would like to project. We'd either like to appear glamorous or sophisticated or maybe conservative because the people that we grew up with that we cared about their approval appreciated conservative appearance. Some Christians may be in a circle that approves no makeup. I'm not saying that God can't lead that way. He can lead each of us in different ways. But sometimes we can neglect our appearance because of what our circle of Christian friends think is still worldliness. For some of us, sometimes we may, um, like I say, put undue emphasis upon the physical. Sometimes young people pass through a stage where they get more approval from their peers by neglecting their appearance. Have you ever seen an 11-year-old boy? Some of the older ones are doing the same thing. They get more approval by this untidy unkempt appearance. I'm not saying that it's wrong to look good. I think that princes of the king of kings should look just as beautiful as they can. I think it's part of our testimony for the Lord. How are we going to... uh, It's part of being all things to all men. So I'm not saying we shouldn't try to look good. I'm saying that if we find our inner support in our appearance, then we're vulnerable, easily upset. Does it bother us when someone hints that we've gained a few pounds? Does it just preoccupy us so it's a God in our lives that we should lose those pounds, not because of the glory of God or because our health is impaired, but because we're so upset that we don't project the image we would like to. And the very upsetness keeps us from accomplishing our goal. Or what, how do we feel when someone... Uh, mentions, you know, or, or we see ourselves, oh, i got a few more gray hairs there, or the wrinkles are developing. Do we go up for hours when someone compliments us on our appearance and down for hours when uh, we know that we're disapproved in this form? All right, performance. How do I do? We want to be a success in something. Again, it's not wrong to do a good job. But why are we doing it? Do we want to be known as a great secretary, a successful mother? You should see how her children turned out. Um, A good teacher, even a good Christian, really faithful, you know. You know, she just gets her three a week. I'm not saying it's wrong to do these things. It's right. But why do we do them? Is it in a spiritual form? Is it trying to gain people's approval? instead of with our eyes upon the love of God. Performance. We want to be known as competent. Have you ever been upset when someone came in your house when it wasn't quite in perfect condition? Or when someone opened that drawer under the phone where everyone sticks everything and this person is rather a perfectionist and it was a mess? How long do we become upset? Status. How important am I? You know, as I went through these first, I thought, well, I'm not guilty on appearance and not on status. I think maybe I am on performance. 
But as I prayed about it, I found that in one form or another, I was guilty of all three. We can even be more pleased to mention those opportunities to serve the Lord that make us appear more important than others that don't. A girl will marry a man who has far less quality, uh, good qualities for making a husband, but maybe has a Cadillac or that sharp sports car or just the right kind of haircut or comes from the wealthy family because we care about status. How upset does a wife get when her, someone passes her husband up? How elated does she get so she's just emotionally elated when he gets a promotion? Surely she should rejoice with him. But if her emotions are governed by his success, then it is because subtly she is resting her, finding her uh, feeling of importance as a person because his status brings her up. And it, uh, there are just many forms of this that we won't have time to go into. But if we are finding our identity on the human level, then it is not a true identity. We were created to be complete as persons in Christ, satisfied and upheld as persons in his love. And anything else is a false sense of identity, so eventually it will fail us. Uh, I won't have time to go into these, but they say that there are three pillars for our sense of identity, like it's a little bowl inside, and we're feeling all right as a person with three pillars holding them up. That's a feeling of belongingness, a feeling of worthiness, being clean and acceptable and all right, and a feeling of competence, being able to face life and its demands, belongingness and worthiness and competence. And as long as uh, these three pillars are in place, we feel secure and good. But if one of them is out, then the bowl upsets, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, sooner or later, one of them fails us. Now, God's plan now is that initially the child, when he's born, should get his identity from his parents. They are God's representatives. That little child cannot relate to God. But he can see in the parents who are God's representatives. He can see in them God's love. He can get from them a feeling of belongingness, togetherness, a feeling of worthiness that he is all right as a person. Even the discipline helps to make him feel clean again. He, and a feeling of competence by being taught how to do things and praised for what he does without expecting it to be as perfect and a, as an adult would do it. Initially, this is right. But then as the child grows older, God's plan is that the parents are like the booster stage that gets the child in orbit and then drops off. And then the child is in orbit around God and is to find his identity in God and in the love of God. And there it is a perfect sense of identity. But if we... In the areas of life that you and I have not yet learned to find our identity around God, maybe instead of our parents, we've transferred instead of to God to someone else, maybe in general or maybe in some specific areas of life. And even a person whose parents wisely represented what God meant them to so that the person grew up with a good natural sense of identity and a basic confidence as persons, yet eventually this false identity will fail them. 
The man who is a success in business has a heart attack. And the performance on which he rested, his identity, is gone. And the bowl tips. He's no longer competent. The, the girl who has taken great pride in her career marries and expected it to be great, but finds that because she no longer has this support of her competence in her career, it's misery. Or the wife who found her identity basically in a good marriage loses her husband and her basic major sense of identity is gone. She no longer has a mirror to look into. And the athlete who has been so successful gets on into middle age and can't be an athlete anymore. And he lives his whole life looking backwards. Eventually, eventual failure is inevitable. The one who finds the, his, her glory in her appearance gets those gray hairs and covers them up, but then the wrinkles come and she uses cream. And, but eventually it shows. And it faces her, it's gone, and she has nothing to hold her up inside. Now, some of us, um, most of us don't have such a good natural sense of identity, but that we lose it <laughs> quite often along the way. With every frown or smile or approval, maybe not of everyone, maybe some people, we don't care what they think, you know, but if those few people that their opinion may affect our future, how upset we get. If they're, <clears throat> they disapprove. So as long as we are finding our inner support, our sense of identity on the human level, in the mirror of people's love and approval. We are vulnerable. We are easily upset and emotionally unstable to one degree or another. When we fail to find approval or are afraid we're going to fail, afraid someone will find out about that faux pas, or uh, one in one way or another, then we try to protect ourselves. <laughs> Certain subconscious reactions take place. And the, these rise up. We don't even want them. But basically they rise in order to protect ourselves from this ever happening to us again and to regain our feeling of being all right. Let me write down the three. The three basic defenses. Hostility, guilt, and fear. You can remember them because turned around is FGH, fear or anxiety. There are other defenses such as rationalization. You know, we try to think of a more acceptable reason that makes us look less foolish or guilty. Or we may deny that anything is wrong. Uh, a wonderful girl that I know said that early in life she tried to protect herself by denying that it was a problem to her. Her parents quarreled often, and it made her feel terrible. And she remembers as a little girl, she's a very intelligent person. As a little girl, she sat there thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll just decide it doesn't matter. And every time it happened, she denied that it even mattered to her. She cut off the emotional response. It made her feel better for a time. And she tried it with other things. But you know what it did? It caused much greater problems in her personality later. Because she had blocked a whole emotional side of her being. 
But the three basic defenses are hostility, guilt, and fear or anxiety. Let's go into them. Hostility, a feeling against others. Do you ever have it? One form or another? I don't mean just blatantly telling them off. That's the way some of us express it, maybe. Some of us are much more spiritual. We just argue inside. We go through that. I remember in Hong Kong, after Dean had passed away, I remember I felt that Jean should, if, if it was going to work for the two families to be so close, then I had to respond to, Dean, to Jean and let him be in the place of leadership. And it worked great. But uh, there were times when my inner response wasn't so perfect. And I remember one morning he said something, and I really didn't think it was the best idea, but I thought, well, it's not that important. And my initial response was fine, but then I went in the other room and I was just going through a nice old mental argument why I was right after all. See, I was proving I'm all right as a person. I'm really better than he. I made myself feel good until the Lord finally just showed me what I was doing. Or we may give them the quiet treatment. If your, has your husband ever come home from work and not appreciated something you've done, so you just not talk to him the rest of the evening. The cold shoulder. Or those resentments that we just harbor way down underneath and they are like acid in our spiritual and emotional life. Those are hostilities. Envy, jealousy, any feeling against the other person. And do you know why it's a defense? Because those feelings really arise because of the desire to teach the other person not to do this to me again. Either by neglect or by intent or in some way what they've actually said or what they haven't said, what they've done or what they haven't done, they've made me feel bad as a person. Now I'm just going to teach them not to do that to me again. So it's a defense. Or maybe we think if I give them a taste of their own medicine, I'll show them how it feels. And then I feel that I'm pretty good as a person because I'm able to get even. But it never brings a true sense of identity. It may make us feel better for a little while, but it compounds our problems in the long run. Guilt. By guilt, I don't mean that gentle Holy Spirit ministry that he makes us realize, Ruth, that was sin. And so I confess it, and then it's just as if I never sinned. I don't mean that true sense of guilt whereby the unbeliever realizes I am a sinner before God, accepting the negative facts that are true, and therefore I will receive Christ because he died for my sins. That is good guilt, constructive. It leads to improvement. It leads to turning to Christ. But by guilt, I mean... Oh, basically self-reproach, self-negation. I'm going to teach myself not to do this again. And if I reproach myself long enough, maybe I'll learn my lesson. And I know it's my fault that I lost their approval. I should have done better. I should have had that drawer clean. So for half a day, I sort of revert to telling myself off. Because then maybe I will be more diligent in the future. Self-reproach, trying to change ourselves and, cor and correct ourselves, or maybe even we feel that sort of a self-appointed purgatory, that if I feel bad about it long enough, then I will be worthy of having, of regaining a sense of being all right. I'll pay for it. But this kind of guilt is destructive. And it's a defense because it is... Uh, Designed to protect us from ever doing that again, from ever losing our sense of identity again. 
And Christian has no business entertaining guilt. If it's real guilt, confess it and let the Lord deal with it. If it's this self-reproach that keeps coming back, it's adding sin to sin. It's saying that Calvary was not enough, that Jesus did not bear all the blame of all my sins, and is trying to improve myself on the human level, uh, maintaining my identity on the visible level. And it just compounds our problems. Fear or anxiety. Fear is about something specific. We know what we're afraid of. Anxiety is something vague that gnaws at us. And this is just sort of a general alarm going up. And I found that when I, when I feel anxious, vaguely upset, I, the Lord always can trace it back to something, to this subject. For instance, I made that phone call. And afterwards, I just had that vague, upset feeling. It was anxiety. And um, I thought, my mom, something's between me and the Lord. Something's wrong. Lord, what is it? What was it about that phone call that made me anxious? And I realized that the whole phone call, it was all right, but it hadn't put me in the best light. And so-and-so might think less of me because of it. And that might affect my future. So I just told the Lord, Lord, forgive me for being anxious. Forgive me for letting my identity rest or finding it in the mirror of so-and-so's approval. Now, Lord, thank you for forgiving. Now, if it makes any difference for your glory, what he thinks or she thinks, then you just take care of that. You can make them forget it. But if it doesn't make any difference for your glory, if it's just me, they might think less of, that's all right, I'm not here to... Be somebody in people's eyes. Now, Lord, reassure me how you... Well, Ruth, I love you just as much as before that phone call, of course. And it's just as if it never happened in my sight that you uh, reverted to this worldly pattern. I think that one of the most outstanding examples that I've had of it is I was living in the castle and uh, going through a period of real anxiety one spring about the children. And I would go to bed. They were each facing problems, different problems, but they were big problems. And I'd go to bed at night and tell the Lord all about it and say, Now, Lord, I'm casting my care upon you and turn over to go to sleep, and it would all flood back in. I was so anxious, and I thought, This is strange. I used to, you know, when I was younger, I used to easily be able to cast all my care upon the Lord. But I can't now, Lord. What is wrong? You know, I found out what was wrong. I was anxious because I was finding my identity at that point in my success as a mother. Not right now. No one else would know about those problems right now. But supposing they were not resolved, there might be a period of years later on when I would be known as a failure in my one major responsibility, which is being a mother. And I didn't even have a husband anymore to share the blame. And I was anxious. So I confessed it to the Lord, Lord, Forgive me for my basic sin, not just the symptom, the anxiety, but the sin of letting my success be my God. Whatever supports me inside is my God. And my success as a mother had, I had suddenly slipped back into letting it be my God. So I said, now, Lord, before they were ever born, I committed them to you for your maximum glory. And if, for some strange reason of your own, 
they would bring more glory to your name. By having me look like a failure, even for a long time, you have my permission. So now success was out of the way, man's approval was out of the way, and the gnawing anxiety left. And instead I could pray in faith with a godly concern, but not with anxiety and fear. Relying on our defenses compounds our problems, and it ties us up, it immobilizes us. You know the story of Lazarus. He was called forth from the grave. He was given new life, and then Jesus said to his friends, Now, you remove the grave clothes. He had new life, but the expression of it was all hindered because he was tied up with those grave clothes. And the friends were to unwind them. And our defenses become like grave clothes that tie us up. And sometimes we need help from other Christians. We're members of a body. Sometimes we need help to see through, to have someone pray with us. Sometimes we need much time before the Lord. The defenses, it's been said, uh, become like layers on an onion. (laughs) And they need to be peeled off. We develop one over another and we can't even see what the situation really is. And it's really important that we have a personal diagnosis of our problem. We have a great physician. He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. He's given us the word to shine like a light into our hearts and show us what's wrong. But we need a daily appointment with the physician. He has a long-range cure in mind. He's not going to annihilate the disease until glory. He has a long-range cure aimed at complete cure. But in the meantime, if we will respond to him, we will be freed from the distresses and symptoms. And if they arise again, we will be freed again. James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives liberally and he upbraids not. Or one version says, he won't make you feel foolish or guilty. He won't reproach you. Just say, Lord, I've been covering up maybe some things so long. See, I, I have this. I, I often, whenever such and such a circumstance feels I, comes up, I respond wrongly. I react wrongly to my husband or to my my friend, or whatever it may be. Or you know, Lord, how often I get anxious. Or how often I indulge in this self-reproach. Show me why, specifically. He will lovingly do so. And I wish there were time this morning, but there isn't, to go much into the fact that the same sickness can have opposite symptoms in different personalities. One person tries to prove that he's all right as a person in a positive way. His performance, see how see how well I look and see, I really perform quite well and I'm quite important. You should love me. Love babe. The other one says has never been free to do this maybe, so they approach it negatively. You know, I know I don't look the best. I really try, but my hair is awful. I can't do a thing with it. I just wasn't given the best features. And, you know, I try real hard. I spend all afternoon baking that cake. I hope you can eat it. I'm afraid it's no good. And I was born on the wrong side of the tracks and just never seemed to make it in life. See, I need you. You should love me. The same same disease, opposite symptoms. One may spend undue time on clothes and appearance. Another may neglect hers because... Friends approve that. And one may look and think, I'm sure glad I'm not like her. She's so conceited about her looks. And the other thinks, sure glad I'm not slovenly like her. And the Lord probably says, oh, you dear ones, if you just 
uh, look to me and my love, I'd balance you both out a bit. One is a... <clears throat> one has no problems. You know, only inferior people have problems. Not everyone really has problems. But this kind of person can't even admit they have problems. He's sometimes even to themselves. And many times to other people. Because that would show others would lower, maybe lower their opinion of us. Other people are running all over telling everyone about their problems because they are longing for attention and love and concern. Opposite symptoms, but the same disease. And in the notes, we go into a, a few more of these. You know what we often do? We see these symptoms in our life. We know they're not scriptural. But we act like the girl who has pimples and is very frustrated about them. And she pinches this one and pinches this one. And really, she's just spreading them. And she never takes time to go to the doctor. And maybe he would find out, you know, if you just omit chocolate from your diet, it'd be all right. We don't let the Lord get through to show us the cause. So I'd like to take a little time on the cause. Basically, whoever supports us or whatever supports us inside is our God. This is the one function of a God. To bear us, hold us up emotionally, physically, in every way. Who is our sovereign? Am I on the throne? Am I still trying to maintain a feeling of being good as a person on my own, in people's eyes? Then I'm sovereign. God isn't. Who am I trusting? Am I trusting my ability to look good, my ability to perform, the status I can gain in life in one way or another by hook or crook, by marriage or birth or education or whatever it may be? Am I trusting myself? Then am I trusting myself to defend myself and make things right again by my hostilities and guilts and fears? That's self-reliance. And that whole system is trusting man's approval instead of God's. Who am I trusting? This whole thing of the pride system in which man is trying to be something on his own whether it takes the form of obvious pride or inverted pride and false humility. Self is on the throne. Now, we know the importance of faith. God says much about faith. This is the thing he's looking for in lives. And we have shown that this is perverted faith. It's trusting man and myself instead of trusting God. John 5.44 says, How can you believe who receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Have you ever tried to believe and can't? You'd like to have more faith, but it just doesn't seem to come. You claim and claim that promise, but you really don't believe it. How can you believe? How can I believe at the points where I am reverting to this system of trying to get honor in people's eyes? Nothing wrong with seeking honor as long as we seek the honor that comes from God only. And he has given it to us in Christ. We are honored in his eyes. Uh, I saw a cartoon that showed two ladies playing golf. And one of them was all ready to, to swing the club, and then she was petrified. There were two little birds up in the tree. And uh, 
Her friend says, Fran, hit that ball. Those birds don't care how you do. And there are too many birds in our trees. And it immobilizes us to really do anything that's meaningful in God's sight. Faith is so important. And faith is, cannot come when, until we turn from man's approval to God's. Faith is basically believing, and believing is basically receiving. And pride hates to be a recipient. Hates to admit that I am nothing in myself. I was never created to be somebody in myself. But I am a complete person, all right forever as a person, because of Christ and his death for my sins and my union with him. Pride doesn't want to receive. Pride wants to do it herself. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 speaks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are symptoms of worldliness. These are things that make us feel all right as persons if we can get enough possessions or if we get enough pleasures that proves that we must be pretty good persons to deserve this, or if we can become somebody, uh, the pride of life, uh, accomplished enough to be somebody in man's eyes. These symptoms have a cause, and this scripture says it's because the love of the Father is not in this person. And the New English Bible says that this person who has these symptoms is a stranger to the Father's love. In other words, when I experience those symptoms is because I'm not letting the love of God shine in and support me inside. Nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given. He wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to, uh, he gives us things to enjoy, but if we rely on his gifts for our feeling of being all right as a person, then we may feel better momentarily, but it's no cure. Romans 10, 4 and 5 can apply here. The word righteousness in the New Testament basically means a position of acceptance and approval. That is what a good sense of identity is, realizing that I am in a position of acceptance and approval. So the verse could be translated that they, being ignorant of the sense of identity that God gives and going about to establish their own identity, have not submitted themselves to the identity that is of God, For Christ is the end of self-effort for identity to everyone that believeth. Now, that's a liberal, I mean, a loose paraphrase, but it's a basic idea of the verse. And we even try, we compound our problems as Christians by adding, we have the burden of getting people's approval, and then we get the cart turned around and we think, now we've got to deserve God's approval. And all the time we feel so negative toward ourselves, so unaccepted. God's approval is not earned, it's unmerited favor that is given to us in Christ, and we don't have to earn it. And the cure is found in receiving God's love. Oh, I wish we had the whole period on this, and I'm going to go five minutes over. You can't keep women still, you know, you've got to give them enough time. But scriptures from beginning to end are a love letter from God. He, throughout the Old Testament scripture, has wonderful evidences of how dear we are to him. And he culminates it by demonstrating and commending his love toward us in that even while we had no use for him, he sent Christ to die for us. Talk about love. Do you think we can find a better love? We have the greatest love. 
We don't have to quest out of the emptiness to try to get something to fill us on the human level. If God wants to give new human loves, great. But we are, we are complete as persons in Christ. We translates, uh, in one place says that God's love is exotic, is foreign to the human heart. You just can't find a love like this on earth. The song says that the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. He loves us. I wish that there were time to go into lots of scriptures on this. We can only learn it as we let God directly communicate it to our hearts. Yes, initially, we, and even as we go along, we see his love through people. God has brought many people into most of our lives who in one way or another reveal the love of God to us. But he wants us to be in orbit around his love primarily and as much as we can directly. And it must be communicated to us through Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, shed abroad in our hearts. Psalm 63, 3 and 6 in the Moffat, he says, Thy love is more than life to me. Therefore my lips praise thee. My soul clings close to thee. Thy right hand holds me fast. Talk about a feeling of closeness and belongingness. Psalm 84 says the Lord God is a sun and shield. He's a sun to warm our hearts with his love and a shield to protect us. We do not need, we do not need visible approval and we do not need our own defenses. God is a sun and shield. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. He has a good plan for us. doesn't matter if it has, humanly speaking, has status in it or not. What difference does that make? God says there's no such thing as status in his eyes. He had his Esthers, queens, and he had his Dorcases just able to sow. And he commended them both. Doesn't matter what our function is, our gifts are. He loves us individually. He created and uniquely fashioned each one of us for himself. And he didn't make any pattern and say, this is it. He wanted a variety of people because our love each satisfies him in a different way. Your time of love with him when you respond in love to him satisfies him in a different way than mine does. And it will for all eternity. We are uniquely precious to him. His love is not just for mankind as a mass, but for each of us. And he has no preference for any certain shape or size or features or color or anything. He loves us each individually. Psalm 27.4, this was the first verse that my husband ever shared with me before I knew he was interested. But um, in our love relationship with God, we let him express his love to us, and then there can respond love back to him. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Lord, you love me so, and you're so wonderful. And I love you, and there's nothing I want out of life more than to behold your beauty and know you better and experience your love more and love you more deeply. Psalm 73, 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. 
This will happen in one form or another whenever, uh, all through life. Even when we do actually fail and go back into the pride system momentarily, but we can come right back and confess it and let the Lord love us. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have a love that's lifelong and it's eternity long and it'll never quit. And God may give human loves or he may take away loves that I have found great joy in, but the deepest love is his. There's a song that says, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of man, from the best bliss that earth imparts, I turn unfilled to thee again. Life brings joys and loves. Marriage in God's plan brings deep satisfactions. But the heart that is tasted of God's love will always turn back and say, from the best bliss that earth imparts, I turn unfilled to thee again. Only his love can meet our deepest needs. Let me share with you just references of three more verses. Isaiah 41, 13. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. Zephaniah 3, 17. I know I'm going too fast. God loves us. Now, he shows it through his word. He shows it through other people. To the end of our days, we are members of one body and we profit from other people's love being demonstrated to us, whether we are immature or mature as Christians. But the problems come when instead of accepting those human loves and saying, thank you, Lord, they're an expression of your love. So it's really receiving the love of God through people. We rely upon them, and then pretty soon the relationship is marred by hostility or want or something. So God demonstrates his love through people, and he also demonstrates it through trials. And we receive his love through trials. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Did you know that that difficulty proves you're very precious to him? Most parents don't go around spanking the neighbor kids. But they care enough about their own to discipline them in, in love as they need it. Because they are precious to them. And they know that they need the security of the right discipline. And God sends trials into our lives. It might be like a series of tests in a hospital or a series of operations, or one major operation. The trial comes to help cut out the negative, to help cut me away from this pride system, this human sense of identity, to find my identity in God alone so I will be invulnerable, unperturbable, more of the moments of more of my days. Romans 5, 1 through 5, look it up in living letters. It shows that we've been brought to a high position in Christ. And we can look forward confidently to the future. He's going to make us exactly what we should be. We're not finished products yet, but we will be. But in the process, he sends trials. And the trials develop qualities in us. So that as the process goes on, verse 5 in Living Letter says that then no matter what happens, we will be able to hold our heads high in the light of God's love. For we will feel... How dearly God, for we will know how dearly God loves us and we will feel this warm love everywhere within us by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Trials help us to experience God's love more. And at each point of need in our daily life, we can experience his love more fully. And by point of need, I mean every time when you feel lonely. This is a temptation. And we can either face it, turning to the Lord to meet our loneliness, or we can sin and cultivate the loneliness. 
whenever you feel that hostility arising. Lord, I'm, uh, I really feel mad at so-and-so. I feel hostile toward him. Maybe it's my child, see? And I really told him off. He has to get over this attitude. And I told him off as though it was, I'm his enemy and he's my enemy. And, uh, Lord, that was wrong. The reason I, why did I do that, Lord? You know, it's the same way as, it, as two weeks ago when it happened. Um, it was my success as a mother again. Because if I'd have been a good mother, that attitude would have been dealt with long ago. And so his attitude proves that I'm not a good mother. And, Lord, somehow I've let my feeling of success as a mother be God again. Support me. Now, Lord, forgive me for that sin. Now, Lord, it's just as if it never happened. Jesus bore all the blame for it. Thank you. Now, I need a good dose of love. If I sinned, basically, my sin was not receiving your love. Now, I just open up. Tell me how you feel about me. And he may bring Jeremiah 31.3 to mind. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I've drawn you. Everlasting, Lord, that means it never changes. It's always the same. It'll never quit. It's no different than it was before I had that hostile feeling. Thank you, Lord. I'm all right as a person in your eyes. Now, Lord, channel this love toward me through my son. The next time it comes up, let it be the kind of response you would have. So the next time the attitude comes up, I say, you know, honey, you know, mom thinks you're great. I don't attack his ego, see. I accept him as a person, though I disapprove the deed or the attitude. Honey, mom thinks you're great. You know, I've told you before, you're like a prince in my eyes. And this attitude isn't really becoming to a guy like you. It's our enemy. Let's see what we can do about it. Correcting, but not disapproving the person and threatening him, and then he learns much better. I've got to quit. But, well, some of these things will be in the notes. You better get the notes. But increasingly, as we take in the love of God, some of these old patterns of living, these old symptoms begin to fall off, just like the new leaves in the spring push off the old dead leaves. We find ourselves reinforced within by the love of God, just like steel runs through concrete. And all life takes on such a different light. If we're receiving everything from him, then in trying, instead of trying to get people to meet our needs, we can give to people. We can love them, whether they're being nice to us or not, because we've got someone that's always meeting our needs. We can be channels of the love of God. We're not meant to be producers of love. We just cannot produce this kind of exotic, wonderful love that God gives, but we can channel it. And we don't channel it like a lead pipe. Water goes through a lead pipe and it doesn't affect the pipe much, except maybe wear it away a little bit. We channel God's love like a river. If the river is dried up, and then the rains come or the spring water flows and then there's saturation of the riverbed and then there's overflow and saturation and overflow. And as we let God's love saturate us, then there's overflow and we can channel his loves to others. So what is the object of our lifelong quest? Is God who is love. Who are we? We're loved ones. We're queens of the supreme ruler of all, the one who's altogether lovely. Doesn't that make you feel like somebody? What's, what's the meaning of our existence? Where are we going? God has given us the greatest destiny possible, and that is to be his very own for eternity, to share his love and his purposes. And we are somebody 
because somebody with a capital S loves us. Shall we pray? <laughs>